I apologise that I'm not speaking about three wise men, but these three wise men, at the end of their um, sort of trip of discovery, uh, did end up worshipping the child, the Christ child. And then if you remember, they had a dream. And in that dream, um, God told them that uh, the child would be in danger if they went back to King Herod. And they went back by a different way. In actual fact, having encountered the Christ child and worshipped him, having experienced the power of God in finding this child just as they had believed they would, they actually put their own lives on the line because Herod was not the sort of guy that you double-crossed. So although I'm not speaking about um, the three wise men, you'll discover that their courage at the end of their journey is very much part of the story that we're talking about today because the church schedule says, I am to preach to you from Mark chapter 8. It's not an easy chapter to preach from, really, uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's very familiar. It's very familiar, and it's got some big themes in. And the problem with big themes that have become familiar is that they, they deaden, and they die on us. And we can quote them like like proof texts, but it makes no difference to our life. You understand what I'm saying. And this chapter ends like that. It's also difficult because I'm going to suggest what some of you, to begin with, may consider to be, John Lyons won't, but you'll consider this to be heresy, that actually Jesus, halfway through this chapter, is near to feeling a failure, if not actually feeling a failure. And if you consider that that is heresy, all I want to do is to turn you to Isaiah 49, which is one of the servant songs, one of the four servant songs about the Messiah. And in Isaiah 49, these words are put actually into the mouth of the Messiah. I have laboured to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Those words are put into the mouth of Messiah, so I know that at some time during his life this was his experience. I suspect that this chapter may have been one of those experiences when he just felt, what on earth is it all about? You know what it's like when you have slogged your guts out at work or at school or whatever it is, or in the family, or at trying to renew relationships, you slog your guts out and nothing happens and it all seems to go dead and wrong on you. And you just put your elbows on the table and your head in your hands and you go, what's the point? The interesting thing about the quote, however, from Isaiah 49 is that I haven't completed it. It goes on to say, I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing, yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And I want you to notice, if we go through this chapter, if my conjecture is correct, how Jesus goes through this pain, this sense of failure, and yet says, no, but the purpose of God is such and such, and I am in God's purpose, and we are now going to start the fight back. Because my reward is in God's hand. Mark chapter 8 begins uh, 
has two wonderful miracles in it, which we're not going to spend much time on. One of them is the feeding of the 4,000. You've heard of the feeding of the 5,000, and I just suggest that if you get the two reports from the same book, and if you put them side by side, it makes a great spot-the-difference competition. I spotted ten, and I know that there's one other which is actually lost in translation. The most significant difference, however, is that the feeding of the 5,000 was the feeding of 5,000 Jews. Jesus has now moved into predominantly Gentile territory. The feeding of the 4,000 was the feeding of those who were predominantly Gentile. Jesus' ministry has moved up there, and he has the same compassion for them as he had for the Jews. And in actual fact, everything that happens in this chapter happens in land which is predominantly and then increasingly Gentile. Because if you look at your maps, you discover that he's moving north towards Caesarea Philippi, which is away from Jerusalem, further and further away. So it begins with the feeding of 4,000. And then at the end of it, Jesus dismisses the crowd and he gets in a boat with his disciples and he goes across the Lake Galilee only to be confronted... Um, by a delegation of Pharisees. Now, what we're told is that these Pharisees um, began to question him. The word can mean cavil. They came for theological controversy. They weren't interested in him so much. They wanted to argue the point with him. They wanted him to fit in with their concept of theology and Messiah, and the way that the Jewish faith worked. And so they questioned and cavilled him with him and sought a test. The word test there is the same word that Mark uses in chapter 1 when he says the devil tempted Jesus. This is a temptation. And we read that Jesus, who a few verses earlier was filled with compassion, is now deeply sighing, deeply groaning. You almost begin to see, oh no! How long have I got to put up with this? And he's quite severe in his response to them. No sign will be given to this generation. And he turns around and he gets back in the boat and he goes back the way he's just come, back the other side. And one of the best ways of resisting temptation is just to turn your back on it and walk away. And I suspect that's maybe what he was doing on this occasion. And he went back across the lake again. He was introduced to a man, and he healed the man. The man had no faith, it seems, um, because Jesus prayed with him, and then he opened his eyes, almost not expecting anything, and to his astonishment saw people, but they were like trees walking. Oh, I see people, but they're like trees walking, and Jesus prayed with them again. And then we're told that when the man opened his, his eyes this time, faith had blossomed in him. That's my phrase, not the biblical phrase. Faith had blossomed in him, and he now looked intently. Whoa, he said, I can see everything clearly. Whoa. Now that was heartening for Jesus, because in the boat back across the lake, after the confrontation with the Pharisees, he'd had a discussion with his disciples. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, he'd said. And his disciples totally, totally got the wrong end of the stick. (coughs) They thought he was talking about bread, for goodness sake. And, 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 And they just got themselves in such a tears about it, that Jesus now is thinking... The Pharisees, okay, I can understand the Pharisees. What's that all about? I'd 
let it be over quick, Father. But now my disciples, and he's been saying to them things like, um, have you got eyes, but you don't see? Have you got ears, but you're not hearing? Don't you even understand? And you now feel that he's just saying, oh, what is it all about, Father? (coughs) And so he moves further north. I suspect, this is just my conjecture, because I haven't found it in any commentaries, okay? And you just feel free to argue back at me, but later, okay? Unless you think I'm being heretical, in which case, speak out now. But my conjecture is that his confrontation with the Pharisees on this, time, on this occasion is the thing that's set up in his mind, hang on a minute, things are getting to such a pass now, my time is limited. I've really got to spend time with my disciples, Father, so to get their minds and their hearts ready for what is going to take place, because I know the purpose that you have, and I know how this purpose is going to be fulfilled. I have got to get my disciples ready. And the best way of getting them ready without interruption is to move them further away from Jerusalem because in Jerusalem that's where all the theological controversy will take place. You can read about it in in the last pages of the Gospels in his life, the theological controversies, the constant testings and temptings that he faces from the different theological perspectives. And Jerusalem is the heart, the epicenter of the institution of Jewish religion. And Jesus didn't come to sort of, didn't come to bolster the institution of the Jewish faith. He came to declare the glory of the Father and bring to pass, bring into understanding a good news about God, which the institution just, just didn't know anything about. And so he got away from where all the disturbances could be. And he took his disciples up north towards Caesarea Philippi so he could begin to teach them in peace. (coughs) If possible. And so we find Jesus nearing Caesarea Philippi. Excuse me. (coughs) He starts by saying to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, you'll be surprised at the, um, the superstition that was around in those days. I mean, you think people have got weird ideas about Jesus these days. They had weird ideas about Jesus when he was walking around on the earth. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Huh? And some say that you're one of the prophets. And some people think you're actually Elijah. But who do you say I am? And Peter answers, You are the Christ. Yes! Because although it doesn't put it in these words, in this account in in Mark, in another account of the same scene, Jesus says, Simon bar Jonah, son of Jonah, you're just a bloke. But it wasn't humanity, it wasn't, it wasn't, men that revealed this to you. This is a revelation from my Father in heaven. And hope stirs in Jesus as well. And then he begins to explain to them that the Son of Man must suffer. 
He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. This is verse 31, and these are now the verses I'm going to major on for the next few minutes. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. No messing. This is what's going to happen. You notice that he said he must be killed and after three days rise again. Well, don't forget, we had 2,000 years of familiarity with this story. We know all about Easter. We've got Easter hymns. We sing them on the bus or in our hearts on the bus. We know all about this stuff. But put yourself in those disciples. Have you ever heard of resurrection? What on earth does it mean after three days rise? Do you understand that? It's a conundrum. And put yourself amongst those disciples. You've just acknowledged the Messiah and he's as good as admitted that you've got it right because the Father in heaven has revealed it and then suddenly he's talking about dying. That doesn't come in the theologies of Messiah. Not the current ones of their day. The prophets had spoken about it, but nobody saw it that the prophets had spoken about it in this kind of way. So Jesus first says, I, the Messiah, am going to die, and then he talks in conundrums about rising from the dead, and Peter, and somehow another... I can't help thinking that I might have been impetuous enough to do the same thing if I had been in his shoes. So forgive me, but he has my sympathy, although he made a catastrophic catastrophic mistake. He turns around and says, No, Lord, not you. Now, Jesus' response is amazing. It is a fierce riposte. If the two of them were holding swords... Then Peter's words drew blood. But Peter's riposte disabled Peter's sword arm temporarily. Because Jesus looked round at the disciples about him, saw that this had been heard, and decided that this could not be allowed to stand. Because this was, in actual fact, a demonic attitude to the purposes of God. The Son of Man must be handed over. Because that's what we don't get. That's lost in translation here. We just use the word must. And our familiarity says, oh yes, he must be handed over. We know that's what happened. But in actual fact, this word must means it behoves him to be handed. It's necessary. It's inevitable. And it was necessary and inevitable because of the purpose of God. And it had been the purpose of God from the moment of his birth. The conception, this was the reason he came into the world. It, it said of Jesus in one of the prophecies, Lo, it is written of me in the scroll of the book, I come to do your will, O God. And Isaiah 53 has it, that it is the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. It is the will of the Lord that he should offer up his own soul for the transgressions of many, his own life 
for the transgressions of many. And when Peter says, no Lord, no Lord, not you, Jesus turns around with this fierce riposte. And I've often wondered whether he's looking at Peter or looking over Peter's shoulder as he says it. Get behind me, Satan. You're not interested in the things of God, only the things of men. Peter shrinks back. And then he gathers the whole crowd, Gentile crowd, remember, to join him together with his disciples. We're not going to have any argument about this, Peter. Everybody come here. Let me tell you what it's going to be like. And he said to them, I'm reading the wrong chapter now. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, Now, listen to this, because this is shocking. It's not shocking to us, because we've quoted it at too many baptismal services. But, put yourself back there. Jesus has said the Son of Man must be killed. The word he uses means destroyed, annihilated. Now he uses the word cross for the first time. He called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, saying, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. Turn his face away from him, as though embarrassed at him. Don't want anything to do with him. The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now you see how Jesus has recovered from his sense of failure, if indeed he had a sense of failure, because now he's looking at a cosmic plan. The Son of Man will be killed on a cross, but on the third day he will be raised. But after he's raised, then he's going to come with his Father's glory. This is the purpose of God. It is for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the agony of the cross. And so he's fighting back because the purpose of God must and will be fulfilled. But what about me then and you? Because these last words come right into the 8th day of January in the 13th year of the 21st century. They were spoken to a crowd and to his disciples then, but They're addressed to, if anyone would come after me. Would you follow him? Then these words are addressed to us. If our answer to that is yes, these words are addressed to us. And now they are shocking. In fact, they're scary. I'm not sure that I wanted to preach them to tell the truth. Because I don't want people to think that I'm being fanatical. 
and I'm not. And I wouldn't want any of you to become fanatical. That would be terrible. But to be real, that's another matter. Jesus says he's going to be annihilated, but he will rise again. And then he mentions the cross. And he says that anybody who wants to follow him must be prepared to take up their own cross. What does a cross signify? And why was Jesus crucified? Was he crucified? All he did really, wasn't it, was stay true to his own identity. He is the Son of God. Can't deny that, can he? He is the Messiah. He can't fluff around and say he's not. Whoever has seen him has seen the Father, so he must do the things he sees the Father doing. He must speak the things he hears the Father speaking. He can't do anything else, can he? If he's going to be a man, a saviour of integrity. He's only being actually what he is. And many people followed him because he's got crowds listening to him even as he says this. But many people hated him for it. Because it exposed their own duplicity and lies and deception and institutional vanity and pride. And because of that, they jiggled together this way of arresting him and condemning him and unlawfully having him killed. So if he says to you and to me, if, you, if we want to follow him, we should take up our cross, does he say we have to run to the executioner and say, give me a cross? God forbid. Or is he saying that as followers of Jesus, we have to be have that same integrity. Christ, by his death alone, has brought us to God. Christ, by his spirit, has made us new people. Christ, through his word, has given us a new understanding of life and integrity and morality and attitude. How can we be ashamed of Christ and hide that integrity? And yet for some of us, it's going to get us in trouble at work or with the family. Or it's going to get us in trouble in the club and we won't be elected president. And for some people, and may not hear, but some people, they will find their names in headlines in a media frenzy because they wore a cross at work or offered to say a prayer because they had it in their heart that that's what God was asking them to do. Now then, the end of taking up a cross is to die. It's a life which is taken away from us. But it is a life before it is taken which is offered to God. 
have you, when you became a Christian, did you, in the first joy of knowing the Lord, say, Lord, I will go anywhere for you. I will do anything for you. Let me live. Let me die. Let me be well. Let me be ill. I will be utterly yours. I did. And then I thought a number of times how rash I was. And then, when I first drove to Romania, <coughs> there were wild, wild legends going around that people taking, uh, taking aid to Romania were being held up by bandits at gunpoint and having their lorries and cargo stolen and they were left stripped and naked beside the road without their passports. And I think it might have happened in one instance. And I remember sitting in a car park in a big store where one of the managers had offered to give us some stuff to take. I remember sitting in the car park and saying, God, am I willing to go there if this might happen to me? Just for some aid? And the answer was, why are you going? Well, I think you told me to. There you are then. Now, you've all done that at some time, I'm sure. But Jesus said, this is the steady-mindedness. This is the conviction. This is the way people who follow Jesus will be. What a change, what a difference that's going to make to our marketplaces and our workplaces and our hospitals and our schools and our communities and our streets, eh? What a bunch of men God is calling together if they're saying, I am willing to so li live with you with such integrity that whatever my disappointments in church, I'm living for you and I'm willing to die for you if it takes me there. What a bunch of women, strong, healthy, like the women that kept the nation alive during the war. If, if our women say, and I will live for you like that, Lord God. Oh, fantastic. So what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? I've wondered about this. Shall I say anything about this or shall I not? Blame Pete. Well, no, don't blame Pete. Because it was my decision. Okay. Pete said, be bold. I think I have been. But Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, that was then. We have prayed for the people who are craving sung and prayed for the people craving for drugs, the people who are lost, the people who are impoverished. The love of God reaches out to these people all around us and that love must reach out through us. But we also need to have an intelligent understanding of our society. Adulterous and sinful generation. I put these words together a couple of weeks ago, and that's the wrong thing. As I was musing, 
The church in Britain, that's us, right now lives amid rampant consumerism in a society troubled by press corruption, the failure of judicial systems to support justice, and political instability to curb obscene greed among money merchants. And yet, for some reason, we don't have the same anger with the footballers who earn obscene wages every week. Places where I lived in peace when I was a, a youth have now become ganglands. Stockwell, Peckham, Tulse Hill in London. Inequalities are forcing good people into penury. Binge drinking, drugs and pornography are endemic in our society. And so I'm worried, but initially for a different reason than you might expect. I'm worried because it's so easy to get up in the morning and go back to bed at night as though everything's normal. So it's just the way it should be. I find that shocking. And I find it shocking in me. I find it shocking in me when I suddenly discover myself watching some violence on the BBC or ITV news and treating it like a Hollywood fiction. The society we live in is so desperately, desperately in need of God and failing and collapsing. So I wondered who might be the sort of people who wants to save his life or to gain the whole world. And my mind turned to Amos. I love Amos. I don't always enjoy him. And in Amos 6, I read this, and I'm going to bring it into the 21st century. Okay? You lie on beds inlaid with ivory from dreams and lounge on your couches, purchased at huge discount at DVS, DFS. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves, which are Tesco's best. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments using iPods and Xbox. You drink wine by the bowlful, three for the price of two. And you use the finest lotions, Yves Saint Laurent, or, and I don't know how to pronounce this, Lancome, but they're more expensive. You do all these things, he says to the people of his own day, but you don't grieve over the ruin of Jacob, Joseph. And I wonder, where in this scenario does the church in general come in Britain today? And so it's got me thinking, really thinking, and bold enough to say we've got to sort this out if necessary. Only you can answer for yourself. But are we as a church? Are we as a church so 
pleased to say that we must we must care for and love the impoverished and the, and the drug addicts and the, and the people who have been caught in crime and have been deceived by satanic things. Can we say it? You know, and that's where it ends. Are we really missional? And we say we're for the integrity of Christ. And I simply ask the question because I don't know what the answer is. Are we grieving over the ruin of Joseph? Are we a rounded body? And are we following Christ in such a way that we say, Lord, even if it brought me to humiliation among my neighbours, controversy in the place where I work, Difficulty with my wider family or even my closer family. I wish to live for you even if it would take me to my death. I have such an affection for this woman. I've almost finished. Her name is Blandina. She comes from the second or third century of Christian century. And this happened in Lyon, in France. Her name is Blandina. When she and three other companions were first brought into the amphitheatre for being Christians, she was suspended on a piece of wood fixed in the ground and exposed for food for the wild beasts, at which time, by her earnest prayers, she encouraged others. But none of the wild beasts would touch her, so that she was remanded to prison. Then she was again produced for the third and last time. She was accompanied by Ponticus, a youth of 15. And the constancy of their faith so enraged the multitude that neither the sex of the one nor the youth of the other were respected, being exposed to all manner of punishments and tortures. Being strengthened by Blandina, he persevered unto death, and she after enduring all the torments mentioned here, was at length slain with a sword. I've got a whole book of modern instances like that from around the world. And this came from Fox's Book of Martyrs. That's not likely to happen to us. But to what extent are we following Jesus? And I leave the question open.